0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today,
1: our hosts, Drew McClure
0: and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in.
1: All right, founders, welcome back. Today, I'm sitting down with Monik Suri, the CEO of Therma. Therma is a technology startup whose mission is to help protect our food, health, and planet. Therma builds smart cooling technologies to reduce emissions and improve grid resilience of distributed energy resources through refrigeration as a way to help power the grid across food and healthcare industries. Therma is deployed across restaurants, retailers, distributors, and manufacturers worldwide with leading brands including McDonald's, Starbucks, Now Foods, 7-Eleven, and Marriott Hotels. Monick is an expert on climate and refrigeration and has been speaking at international climate events like the New York Times Climate Hub at COP26, GreenBiz, Verge Electrify, Technology Climate, and Webbit Impact Forum. Before Therma, Monick co-founded the Governance Lab, an innovation center at NYU that develops technology solutions to improve government. He has been recognized amongst the top 100 Harvard alumni in technology, a past affiliate of Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and previously held positions at global investment firm D.E. Shaw & Company and the White House National Economic Council. Here to share his story and along, and, and adventures along the way is Monik. So thank you for being here, my new friend. Pleasure.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for that very kind and generous introduction, Drew. I think only my mom knows most of those things at this point.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, when we when we signed on to talk... I was shocked that you weren't 55 or 60 years old with the amount of stuff that you've been up to.
0: I feel, I feel 55 or 60. I have a one-year-old, so I don't sleep any longer. So <laughs> it, it does feel like 10 years just got added, 15 years just got added, but no.
1: It will feel that way for about another year. And then slowly you'll feel like your life is coming back. Don't worry. <laughs> Perfect. Just hang in there. Thanks. Sleep will return one day. I look forward. Uh, and then it'll be gone again. <laughs> it'll be gone again. So <laughs> like, it goes and ebbs and flows, right? That's great. Uh, but you won't always feel this way. Well, Fred, how did you get into this? Where did, How did Therma get started?
0: Yeah, well, I didn't imagine I was going to run a clean cooling company. I hadn't thought a lot about refrigeration uh, as a kid, you know, it was one of those things that I probably took for granted, like so many other humans, uh, and especially yeah. in the developed world. I was trying to build um, tech for good, trying to build technology that could have positive social impact. That's how I got into the tech space a decade ago. Mm. And I was working on a company, the precursor to Therma. Uh, we were trying to build uh, technology that could help reduce uh, waste and help improve safety and sustainability in the food industry, Farm to Fork. That company was called Co-Inspect, Collaborative Inspect. And in building that uh, that product and, and that company, I discovered just how much waste and how much inefficiency in the food supply was coming from refrigeration um, and mm. just how much time and effort and, and energy was being spent on cooling in general. And in the process, we realized it was a big source of global warming between food waste, refrigerants leaked and energy consumed, almost 10% of warming comes from cooling, which is kind of crazy. Um, I didn't know that, I didn't appreciate that. And Therma, yeah. Therma is really trying to you know, tackle that by reducing waste and reducing loss across product, refrigerants, and energy. And so in the process, save businesses money and and help reduce warming, so.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned being in, you know, inspired to pursue tech for good. Where where did that come from? Had you always known? Had that always been a passion? Or did you kind of stumble into that?
0: Never, never imagined I would work in the technology industry as a kid. Growing up, uh, I grew up in the Central Valley in California. Not Silicon Valley, but uh, the San Joaquin Valley, which is about an hour and a half east of Silicon Valley. Okay. Uh, in an ag town called Fresno. And so it wasn't, uh, you know, this is in the 90s. Uh, it wasn't quite as... Um, you know, as urbane and and cool and sophisticated as maybe, you know, Palo Alto or uh, some of the the Silicon Valley towns. But I wanted to work in policy and government. So in college and then after school, I thought I was gonna work in policy and government. I ended up taking a bunch of twists and turns in my career, um, which again, I think at this point, maybe my wife and my mom still still know about, I'm, I'm starting to forget. But I went to law school five years after college and then went to work in the Obama White House as a junior guy um, working in a policy job. And I met a woman there, the deputy CTO, and she was a former lawyer a recovering attorney, as she jokes. Um, <laughs> and she had gone to Harvard 10 years before me, Beth Novick, and was just a super inspiring uh, human and interdisciplinary thinker. She was working on a book called WikiGov about how technology was transforming every part of life, how we dine, how we date, how we engage in everyday activities, but big public problems weren't being tackled. You know, So we're making pizza delivery faster and helping photo sharing get more smooth and seamless, but governance and democracy and climate weren't being tackled by tech. Um, and there's an opportunity. That was the thesis of the book. So I listened to Beth give a talk in DC and uh, I was really inspired. This is like you know, 10 years ago at this point. Uh, She convinced me to leave government and join her to start a center where she teaches at NYU and MIT. Uh, And so I left government and policy, got into tech, thanks to Beth, to build tech for good, you know, um, civic or or mission-driven technology. So that's really how how I kind of got into tech in the first place.
1: Nice. And then did you imagine that being a founder, being an entrepreneur full-time, had you always imagined that being part of your story or... Did you not growing up?
0: I probably never imagined myself as an entrepreneur or founder. I think I, I, I looked up to people who were entrepreneurs. My parents are, are both entrepreneurs uh, and they were, you know, some of my heroes uh, amongst my heroes as a kid. I think like many people, you look up to your parents as these kind of sure. fixtures in the stars. And um, my dad in particular had started his own medical practice. He moved our family from New York to California when I was uh, 10, a little over 10. And you know he didn't know anybody in California at the time. Uh, all of our family was either in India or in New York. They were immigrants from India, had come over in 81. And um, you know, he just started you know building his own uh, business from scratch you know, in a small town called Fresno and really uh, created a life, a great life for my brother and I. And, 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 you know, I was inspired and still am inspired by those kinds of people, you know, just folks who go out there and like start something new and have a belief that it can be done. So I I think I imagined that it was too hard and too much work to be worth doing as, as a, as a young adult. I think I looked at the weekends my parents worked and the nights and I was like, ah, God, I don't want that. Um, And I'm laughing because now, you know, uh, six years into being an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm working nights and weekends and and smiling
1: about it. Oh man. Well, I want to, I want to dive in actually to that company you mentioned that you had before Therma, uh, just as a story, like, Hey, you started this thing, you found a different problem along the way and pivoted into that. What, what did you learn from starting that first company?
0: So many things, so many things, Drew, I think, you know, uh, my grandmother likes to say my wife, my white, hair didn't come from the sun. You know, there's a phrase in Hindi that's basically <laughs> like my hair didn't get white because of the sun, but, uh, it's a little bit like that. Like, I, I, think I've got a lot more, uh, white hair getting closer to 40 than I was, you know, closer to 30. And, uh, I think I made most of the mistakes you can make as a first-time founder, um, to so co-inspect collaborative inspect. We ultimately, um, uh, pivoted into Therma. So it's, it's, uh, We, you know, some of the same uh, DNA, a couple of the same people. My co-founder Aaron was with me at Cominspec, still at Therma. But maybe the single biggest thing I learned was that if you want to change the world, you have to first accept it as it is. And that was something that a friend of mine had said to me before I became an entrepreneur. He was a super successful entrepreneur. Uh, And he had said, you know, if you really want to change the world, you have to first accept it. With CoInspect, we were trying to help businesses improve food safety and food quality, and we were replacing pen and paper with mobile apps. We were basically taking a clipboard and taking it off a piece of paper and putting it onto a tablet or a a smartphone. The problem, though it sounds uh, sensible and sounds like a good idea, we're going to make the data structured, we're going to make it more accurate, easier to report on, easier to ensure everyone's doing the right thing every day in every location. What happens when you actually try and make this transition is for users they're actually being forced to do work that they were not being required to do on paper. So on paper you can actually mark things as fine at the end of the week or the month. You can, you know, in the industry they call it pencil whipping. You just go in and say, "Yep. Everything's good here. All's hmm. fine." Okay. With a mobile app, we have a timestamp, a geolocation, and a photo requirement. That makes it super hard to fake. It makes it super yeah. hard not to have to do it every single day, four times a day. And while management and ownership will say, yeah, it's great, we need the transparency, we need the accountability, we want the structured data. Turns out that users don't want the extra work. And so I think I spent three years trying to scale CoInspect. I hit about 40 states, we got to 5,000 locations, um, raised you know, a few million of venture capital, but it was such a hard sales cycle, such a slog, because we were fighting mm. human nature. We were trying to make people do work that they didn't have time to do or didn't want to do in the first place and had never been doing for decades. So the problem is that no one said that to us. I never was in a single meeting. I think I did 600 sales and implementation meetings. Not a single person said, oh, I don't want this or it's a bad idea for our company. And we started inspect right down for Chipotle I had a bunch of food safety issues in 2015. So the industry was dealing. I remember that. So it wasn't like people didn't know that, yeah, this is good for society. This is good for consumers. It was more. Human nature is human nature. And so if you're fighting human nature, trying to do the right thing and transform society, that's really hard to do as a tech product, maybe as a regulator, maybe as a legislator, but not as a tech, not as a tech company. And that was a lesson that I had to learn painfully. And it was also important to realize that you have to listen to what people aren't saying just as much as what they are saying. Um, You know, they might tell you they want your product, but if they're not adopting it or they're giving you negative reviews or they're churning, or implementation is a battle or, you know, management won't expand to more locations. Something's going on. Whereas with Therma, we had massive early adoption and we weren't even trying to sell it. We were just testing out the idea of automating the work with sensors instead of using a mobile app. It was like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't use sensors. I mean, maybe we shouldn't use structured data. Maybe we should just automate it with sensors. Why are we making people do work on a clipboard digitally? And so it was just way more aligned with human nature, much easier. To get people to embrace something that reduces how much work they have to do, both are good for society. A, but yeah,
1: that was the the central theme of my learnings. That's fascinating. I haven't heard that before, but it makes a shit ton of sense because any any new thing, there's gonna be the natural friction of doing something different in anything. It's like oh, I have to go through these steps I didn't have to go through before, or I have to learn something new. We were doing it a different way. But if you layer onto that the friction of it going against some human nature you've just doubled the resistance to whatever it is that you're trying to offer uh that's a fascinating way of looking at it
0: i think it's one of those um you know simple and obvious points that it's hard to appreciate or internalize until you live it and you know i think i had this idealistic uh, you know concept about building civic tech or tech for good becoming an entrepreneur especially coming out of law school at Harvard and, and government work and then the GovLab, thinking, well, yeah, people should want to do this. You know, it's it's better for society, it's better for consumers, it's better for their brand. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's going to get massive adoption. And um, yeah, and and the tech that does get massive adoption and and quick rapid adoption, I think, tends to align with human nature as opposed to fighting it. It's something I've
1: yeah started
0: to appreciate. <laughs>
1: I've heard that now that we're talking about, I can't remember what conversation I was listening to, but it was very similar where they were talking about like, Hey, you want to innovate on something that you know is good for the, you know, better for society or better for people. Good idea is something that is better for people and better for society, but you make less money, right? As an example, and you can hopefully get some people to go along with that. They're like, all right, I'll make a little less money and serve humanity this way. Best idea is that you make an idea that's better for everybody and they make more money because you're just going along with human nature. They're like, Hey, what's going to be a no brainer is you're telling me my business is going to you know grow and, and we're helping people like now I have no reason to say no. Does that make sense? It makes
0: complete sense. And I think it's one of those, um, you know, again, you know, one of those insights that if you really break it down. Of course, it's easier to get people to do the right thing when it's also in their self interest. But um, exactly, you know, that's it. That's it. Yeah, and tech is really, I think, you know, it's especially true in tech because products, uh, you know, consumers or users have to love them um, if you really want them to scale. It's less true in other sectors. You know, as a regulator or a legislator, you can make people do what you think is the right thing by just requiring it with the mm. force of government and the law behind you doesn't work that way in tech. It's much more, you know, has to be bottoms up. And I think that's the power of, of technology as a force of social change.
1: How long did it take you to recognize that, hey, this business just isn't working, not the way I want it to? And when did you decide we're actually going to you know, pursue a pivot?
0: Yeah. So we started, you know, I, I guess like three years in to building Coinspect, I started to realize that this is just too hard. You know, it's just it's just a struggle to get people to continue to expand and adopt. And it doesn't matter what they're telling us. The reality is, you know, in the user behavior and in the adoption curves. And so no matter how many meetings people say, yeah, we want this. Yeah, we're going to digitize. It's just not scaling fast enough. You know, I think in in uh, in tech uh, circles, there's this phrase product market fit you know, you know, you have product market fit when like the phones are running off, you know, they're off the hooks and you can't keep up with demand. We weren't seeing that. And so at a certain point it was like, okay, this isn't, Mm. you know, this isn't connecting. That was late, I guess, you know, I'd say like mid uh, 2019, you know, early to mid 2019. And, you know, at that time we were in the field watching users using our product in this, you know, this mobile app, my colleague Andrew Hager, who was our head of engineering at the time, he was with me at a customer location
1: in
0: in the Bay Area. And he looked at me and said, I don't think we're solving this the right way. I think we're making people do work that they don't want to do. We're basically like forcing them to do stuff every day. And Andrew had this really, really um, interesting background. He's a full stack engineer. He's got a software and, and software hardware background and 20 years as an engineer, but he'd also taken a year off in his life in his twenties to go back to culinary school uh, at the CIA in, uh, in Napa. And so he's a CIA trained chef and he'd worked in a culinary kitchen for like a year and a half. So he's worked in kitchens, but is an actual engineering leader. And so he actually knew what it was like for restaurant staff and, and, and workers. Wow. And, and he was like, this is fighting human nature I think we should be using a new type of sensor. I think there's a new type of sensor that would actually automate this. Uh, let me go and check it out and I'll come back to you, Monik. And so that was when we started thinking, maybe we're solving this problem the wrong way. And what we knew was most of what users were checking was temperatures. But, um, but we didn't have the right way of solving it. A mobile app, it turns out, wasn't the right way. A sensor was. And that's how Therma was born. That was summer of 19 when we started thinking about sensors. Therma is short for temperature, humidity, energy, remote monitoring application, team of nerds. So um, it was meant to be a, a new way of solving the, the problem and it started to take off. You know, By the fall, people were saying, hey, we'd love this. We'd love to throw it into you know, more and more of our locations. And by the way, it's not just good for safety, it's actually reducing spoilage and reducing waste because we're catching equipment failure using your 24 seven sensor. Um, and so it was really early signs that, hey, this is way easier to sell and businesses are seeing ROI that they can measure that was key they could calculate the food cost and the equipment cost of, of equipment failures and there was a dollar value there whereas with CoInspect, it was around improving safety and quality very hard right. to
1: quantify so did you struggle at all with the the idea of the sunk cost fallacy they're like hey we put three years into this we've got all these <laughs> customers i've got all this money raised was that a difficult thing to overcome so difficult so difficult drew
0: again one of those things that like you might read a book about sunk cost, uh, you know, or other cognitive biases. I read one of these books. I read Michael Lewis's book uh, about, uh, you know, uh, Danny Kahneman and, uh, and, you know, kind of behavioral psychology and, you know, the 500 different cognitive biases, but I was living it. And so we didn't actually pivot and rebrand Coinspect into Therma until summer of 20. (laughs) So it took a while. It took a while yeah. uh, to actually get there. And COVID helped us in, a, in an ironic way. Uh, it was really, so? really painful. Well, we were starting to fundraise in January of 20 uh, on this idea of a new product called Therma. It was meant to be a second product. Ah. And, uh, you know, we had a term sheet in February of 20. And so the idea was to keep selling two products, Coinspect and Therma. The company was named Therm- was named Coinspect at the time. And March of twenty hit, and suddenly every customer we were selling to, which is basically restaurants and hospitality, shut down, like indefinitely. <laughs> so you can imagine the uh, the investor response uh, in the second week of March. Uh, half my friends are VCs, uh, you know, or private equity guys. At this point, um, suddenly people were not returning calls, and and you know didn't didn't seem to like you know remember my number or email and the term sheet we had went away. Uh, we were about to run out of money. We had like four weeks of runway left. We thought we were lined up for this nice raise in January, February. So we were kind of easing into it. And suddenly we were like down to a few weeks. I actually wrote a letter to the team and said, you know, the shareholders saying, you know, it's been you know an experience of a lifetime. Thank you for the opportunity. And it was pretty close to shutting things down. We were able to save the company by going to a couple of our key investors and saying, we really believe in Therma. We, we truly believe in this new product. And essentially what we came up with was a, a restructure of the business. We recapitalized or recapped the company. We renamed the company Therma. We essentially stopped working on Coinspect and focused exclusively on Therma. That happened in April of 20. And so it was a real forcing function in like the true sense of the word. It was basically you can shut everything down or you can really take a gamble on this thing called Therma which at the time sounded kind of crazy because it was like we're selling this new product in a category that's fairly you know hard to predict because restaurants and hospitality are still shut it's april of 20 so who who the hell knows if this is going to work yeah but um you know we lived to fight another day we raised like 4 million dollars small seed round to keep going um and then Therma grew you know it, we had 3x growth in 2020 and again in 21 and you know Things started
1: to really. What does it mean to recapitalize?
0: Yeah, I mean to use you know the kind of non-technical language around it. You're basically taking your shareholders, and you're saying, okay, the valuation and the capital table that we've set has to be restructured. You know, we just aren't able to justify the valuation based on economics, based on multiples, based on what the market and capital markets will support. So we want to. Um, We want to reset what the valuation is, who the investors are, and, you know, give people a chance to make a decision whether they want to continue to invest and support and be part of the business or whether they want to exit. You know, that can look like many different things, you know, liquidity or not. Yeah. It happens all the time in downturns. Um, You know, it was my first experience restructuring a company and, you know, as the founder and, you know, we'd bootstrapped, you know, in the beginning with CoinSpec. I started the company with my own capital. So it was super painful, you know, but Mm. April, 2020 and March of 2020 was, I think really hard for everybody. Not just us.
1: God, when you get to the point where you're four weeks away, a few weeks away from sending a letter to your friends and family, basically, because that's what your business becomes and saying the dream's over. It was dark.
0: And my wife works in uh, public health. She's a physician, um, and she runs. Uh, she she she's she was the head of safety and quality um, for UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. And so she was dealing with COVID in the health system, um, mm. which is the largest health system in the Bay Area. And so she was dealing with that craziness, and I was dealing with a business that was shutting down. So it was a dark, uh, dark period. You know, it was just every day It was like really hard.
1: Um, you know. It, How'd you make it through that, even just mentally and emotionally?
0: Uh, I mean, lot, a lot of lessons learned, you know, failure. And I'd, I'd not, I'd been very privileged, uh, you know, been very fortunate in life in so many ways, had generally prided myself on not failing. Um, so it was like really humbling. It was extremely, extremely mm. hard to uh, to kind of take it personally or not take it personally to kind of recognize that this is partly my own mistakes or my own limitations and partly timing and and market. Uh, We, you know, I took inspiration from a lot of founders and friends who had kind of been through ups and downs. And then, you know, a lot of my family's in healthcare. My parents are doctors, my brother's a doctor, um, three of my grandparents are doctors. So I got like 15 doctors in my family and they have just a really different perspective. They're not in business in the same way. And they were just like, look, there is life and death, you know, out there. There are struggles that are truly life and death. You're fortunate. You've got an opportunity here to keep going. You've got a company. People believe in you. It's dark, but you know, go for it. You're working on something interesting and important. So I got a lot of personal support from my community, and um, yeah, wow. we reset the business. We cut the workforce down. We cut the valuation down, um, and you know, and live to fight another day. I think what was really exciting at the time was that the climate impact of Therma had started to become really clear in 2019. We had worked on sensors mm. in the summer of 19. And in the fall of 19, uh, we started to apply for climate uh, you know, tech and climate hardware programs. One of our early co-inspect investors was a fund called Urbanus that had a, a climate hardware accelerator called UrbanX in Brooklyn run with BMW, the car manufacturer and they told us about the program and said look your technology you're trying to build hardware for the first time and you know create you know a supply chain maybe you should consider doing this program and so we applied to and got into this climate accelerator in fall of 19 which we went to we did 6 months in brooklyn and i think the the impact potential of therma started to become more and more clear uh, we could see that refrigerants and food waste were really you know, significant problems. I started to learn more about the supply chain and just how much waste there was in food. And so at least we felt like the, w- the work and the possibility was important. And I don't know if you remember, but around that time, there was a lot going on with uh, you know, the local climate, uh, Drew, in the U.S. There were floods and there were hurricanes and tornadoes that were unseasonal. And then where I live in Northern California, yeah. there were just crazy wildfires. And then in 2020, there was this apocalyptic, um, you know, day in, in August of 20. So the climate problem, though, it's always been there, uh, you know, for at least the last three decades, four decades on the, you know, on the horizon, it started to get really topical and really top, you know, front of, of mind in 2019 and 2020. So, mm. you know, I think people around us started to say like, yeah, this is, this is something we can see you guys really, you know, scaling into. And, you know, it's not that we weren't interested in sustainability. The first blog post I wrote in 2015 was about safety and sustainability. But in 2015, sustainability didn't have quite the same cachet or the same uh, you right. know, urgency as it did in 19 and 20.
1: Well, it's not like you're also fortunate in that you had some traction in Therma before the the pandemic hit you had, you'd gotten some training, you had seen some kind of market feasibility and like, hey, I think we're really onto something. So that when you came to those investors, you had more than just an idea is at least what I'm hearing, right?
0: We did, we were really lucky, you know, that we had these early co-inspect customers who were willing to give us feedback on Therma. So we had just enough, I think, proof points or just enough you know, conviction that there was going to be a market for this product and the market was pulling the product. We weren't pushing it the way we'd been trying to fight, you know, up an uphill battle with Coinspect. There were just, you know, so much interest in the product from our customers on the Coinspect side that we we thought, hey, this Therma thing is different. It's definitely mm. got a lot of opportunity. Unfortunately, in February of 20, we couldn't expect that so much of the hospitality and food industry would be transformed by COVID. So it made it yeah. really complicated in terms of figuring out who to sell to. In March of 20, yeah. we believed that Therma was a good product for restaurants and food operators. But the problem was full service and fine dining were completely shut. You couldn't go inside you know, a location. Schools, universities, hotels, airports, these were all sectors that we've been selling into and thought we could sell into. They all shut. So the only vertical we could sell to was fast food. If you recall the summer of 2020, fast food was doing really well. There were lines out the door and down the block for Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out and McDonald's and Taco Bell because they were taking all the excess demand. And so I was driving home to visit my parents in Fresno from San Francisco, where I live, and I saw all these lines, you know, and I thought, you know, maybe we should go back and talk to some of the fast, you know, the, the QSR, the quick service uh, chains, because we have some of them as as leads. And this was kind of like May of 20. And it turned out that, that segment was doing really well. And so all of our customers in 2020 were quick service restaurants. We just, we signed up mm. operators of Domino's, Pizza Taco Bell, Burger King, McDonald's. Uh, it was just like, that kept us going. And so through most of 21, we were primarily selling into quick service restaurants. And then in late 21, a bunch of other verticals opened up again. Full service, fine dining, and then in twenty two, we've been selling into schools, universities, hotels, you know, a bunch of other industries that are back again.
1: But yeah, wow, a couple of strange years. Absolutely, absolutely. But you 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 kept your head on, which is why I was asking about that earlier. We can get kind of lost sometimes in the the emotions and the what ifs and all that kind of stuff. But you kept your head on, saw the opportunities, moved into those opportunities. What else did you learn? you've had a, You've had an upfront you know seat in scaling a company quickly in two years. Uh, what have you learned about scaling your company?
0: I think you know every lesson you know every every lesson is you know a series of mistakes, <laughs> you know just making uh, fewer yeah. of them. I think one of the biggest things I started to appreciate was making decisions more quickly and agility, um, hmm. you know, again, something you know I read books about before I became an entrepreneur but it's not the same thing. Uh, We had to decide within days or weeks, are we gonna keep going or not? Are we gonna keep selling two products or one product? We have 11 verticals. Are we gonna sell to all of them or one of them or three of them? There were just so many things that had to be decided uh, in 2020, especially, and also in early 21, because the world was just so uncertain that it forced me to get into a pattern or habit of making decisions fast, which is not something I do naturally. Um, if you talk to my friends and colleagues, they would say, oh, he's a very deliberate, you know, very kind of, you know, data oriented and 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 methodical decision maker and thinker. And that was something I prided myself on. I was, you know, a really good law student, you know, top of my class in law school, top of my class in college. I like to get A's in everything. Um, you know, I don't like to, you know, uh, you know, not know the full issue. And, you know, as uh, my co-founder, Aaron, this is his Sixth startup. He's in his late fifties. He's been doing tech for the last thirty years. Um, nice. You know, he likes to say business is a pass fail exercise. Monic, it's a, it's a, it's a little more <laughs> 80-20 rule. Like you don't have to get a ninety nine point nine. You just have to like not fail. Um, and so like yeah, you know, yeah. There's nothing like you know a pandemic or uh, you know or, or or calamity to like force force learnings to happen fast. And I think agility and quick decision making came a lot faster to me because we were constantly like hitting the wall in one way or another. Yeah,
1: Um, yeah. That what helped you overcome? What helped you overcome maybe that analysis paralysis and pull the trigger? Like, hey, we got to make a decision. I can't, I can't do what I normally do, which is take forever, look at it from 360 degrees, and I gotta, I gotta make a decision. That's emotionally difficult.
0: Yeah, we almost ran out of money twice, Um, so that helped. Mm. You know, you you kind of yeah. You fail enough and you go through enough heartache and headache and you're like okay i don't want that pain again (laughs) i really don't want to i don't want to be having those conversations um i think that was the that was the kind of way in which the lesson kind of really got hammered home for me that if you take too long you know capital is not infinite and uh, it's a lesson i think we're seeing again in late 22 Um, When when times are good, you might think you have a lot of operating room, a lot of opportunity to maneuver, a lot of chance to maintain optionality. But when constraints start to hit, when capital or resources get tight, then you realize, oh, these things have costs. You know, keeping your options open Mm. or taking time has a cost. And so I think getting close to running out of capital for me was the way in which I started to appreciate, you know, not being agile uh, and not being focused. Well, this is what happens, you know, when they say like lack of focus or lack of agility, are like, you know, some of the the biggest startup killers, well, when you live through them, and you realize, oh, I better move faster, otherwise, I'm going to have that situation with four weeks of runway, don't want that, because it sucks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's when the lessons start to hit home. And I think the other thing, Drew, is, you know, just working with people who are, um, you know, a, you know, a players, and I started to realize how important it was to have you know, both experience and also just the best possible people, uh, Mm. around me, you know, people who are better than me in every possible way in the things that they're good at. You know, I think that, that appreciation that, you know, when you have people who are better than you in the things that you're not best at, then, you know, then amazing things happen. And if you don't, then you're, you know, it just creates a lot, a lot more challenge and makes it harder to succeed. So that, that also was a lesson learned, I think, you know, in the last couple of years.
1: That's awesome. Man, I can't help, but ask as we're coming into to 23, we seem to be on an interesting moment that no one can agree on, which is interesting to me. You know, some are saying like, dude, next year's going to be totally normal. It's going to bounce back. You know, we're going through a temporary recession, blah, blah, blah. Other people are saying batting the hatches. This is going to be the worst thing we've had in a long time. How are y'all thinking about it as a business and are you doing anything in preparation for what you feel like might be a tough year or or not?
0: I mean, a lot of ink has been spilled recently on you know the macroeconomic situation. I think one thing I came to appreciate being a, a private equity and hedge fund investor was it's very hard to know what's going to happen. Um, you know there's just really, really uh, challenging dynamics around prediction of markets. You have you know,
1: so, so many po- factors. So right? many
0: factors. doesn't matter how much resourcing you have, no one quite gets it right consistently, um, you know, for any length of time, it just, you know, yeah. so that was humbling. And D.E. Shaw, where I worked my first job, you know, is one of the best performing investment firms, you know, globally, and has been for 30 years. And even at D.E. Shaw, many, many smart people, and I worked for the gentleman who ran the firm. Uh, and one thing he had said to me was, you know, I don't invest in the stock market, it's too risky, um, which I, <laughs> I, you know, I found like just, you know, very, very humbling and, and, and comical at the time. But I think the point is that, one doesn't really know whether this time next year the market's going to be higher than or lower than where they are today i think what is clear is that there's a lot of pressure on economic factors like labor and uh, frankly uh, the, the climate you know the planet and also uh, you know input inputs like energy and and uh, And resources. So if labor costs are rising because of inflationary pressure, because of supply chain issues, if input costs are rising, again, partly because of geopolitical issues, for example, this ongoing war in the Ukraine uh, and political instability in parts of the world right now, that just means it's going to be harder to avoid a recession. Doesn't mean we're going to have a recession, things may still turn around. Uh, But I think it would be. You know foolhardy and 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 unwise not to prepare and that's one of the lessons i learned in february of 2020 in february of 20 i thought we were on top of the world we had this new product mm. we had a term sheet we were just you know living large um, and then and then the world changed on a dime so i think one thing we're doing now is planning and expecting you know things to get harder and as a result, we're being a little more conservative about capital, being a little more conservative about investing and putting capital to work, being a little more conservative about sales forecasting. Um, I'm, I'm excited to say that we're about to announce our, you know, our latest fundraise, uh, which we've just wrapped up. So we're wrapping up cool. Series A. Uh, thankfully, we got that done despite, you know, some of these um, these challenges. My wife jokes that I have a knack for raising capital at the worst times. Uh, last time I started fundraising was in, uh, January, February of 20. This time we started raising in May, right. As the world was resetting 40% drop in 80% drop in tech, 40% drop in, in capital markets. So yeah, I do like to make it a little harder, uh, for myself, but yeah, I think we, we're in a, in a good position at Therma capital wise at the same time. Yeah. We're, we're preparing for, for possibly tough times.
1: Cool. Well, final two questions. What is the, at this stage of the business? What's the primary challenge as a founder that you're having to find a way through or around? And then second, what's the most exciting thing on the kind of event horizon for you right now?
0: Well, I think it's always hard to, uh, to maintain uh, momentum and uh, morale, you know, keeping people motivated and keeping people excited when the world is not in a great place. Uh, so that specifically, it's easier to maintain morale and excitement when things are going well, but trying to keep people excited and motivated. Um, and again, it reminds me of like April, May of 20, that was a really hard time to tell the team, Hey guys, we have such a great opportunity ahead of us. Let's go. Um, (laughs) same thing happened in the summer of 21. We just announced another fundraise. Um, and you know, then, you know, this new, uh, this new wave of Omicron hit and the world shut down again and it was dark. This year, you know, we're, you know, we're about 80 people, still a small team. Um, but, you know, the world is, again, in a shaky place and we're in a good place as a company. So it's this like disconnect between we have a great opportunity. We're working on a problem that's really socially significant. Our team bleeds green. So they really care about sustainability. I mean, I think to the person, if you ask our team why they're here, the number one reason would be because they want to make an impact on the planet. And I think that's I'm proud of that. But at the same time like people are, you know, not you know they're they're not you know we read the news. They're not unaware of the macro. And so I think that's the hardest challenge. How do you keep people motivated mm. and excited?
1: What what's the most exciting thing you're pursuing right now?
0: Our new energy solution. We're trying to turn refrigeration and air conditioning into batteries. We're turning these assets on and off dynamically in real time and trying to save, you know, around 10% of the bill for a business in the mm. process. I think what's exciting is it's a new product. People haven't really done this before. Like you won't find refrigeration in the world anywhere being turned on and off dynamically uh in real time. Like no one does it. Starbucks doesn't, McDonald's doesn't, Marriott doesn't, Whole Foods doesn't. It's a fairly not novel idea. And we're we're one of the first to actually try and commercialize that. So I love that. It's like really building the future. Uh it's partly how we raised and why we raised, you know, this this uh, series A. But I think um, also, just the possibility of that kind of technology. Climate and energy uh, are in the news because energy prices are skyrocketing this winter and electricity is going to be needed, and, you know, both in Europe, I mean, everywhere, Europe, the U.S., and around the world. And so we have a chance to actually make a dent um, on, on a big problem, which is to reduce energy prices and reduce uh, grid stress. And yeah, that, that's wow. what motivates me. That's what, that's what I'm most excited about.
1: Do you imagine it always like I don't understand the technology that well? So, do you imagine it will always stay in the commercial realm, or will this be something that eventually gets integrated into my refrigerator?
0: I think it could be a residential play one day. It's certainly um, it's certainly possible for the technology to be deployed in consumer settings, in homes, and and uh, residential and. Uh, You know, and and lay settings. It doesn't have to be business. It's more of a question of like, what's the right way to bring technology like this into the world? Right now, our company Mm -hmm. is really designed and tooled for business to business selling and marketing. It's how we go to market, it's how we get to know people in the world, it's how we position. So I think we'd have to get to some scale before we could consider residential. But yeah, if you look at residential fridges, and air conditioning, there isn't a lot of dynamic management there either today. The vast majority are still dumb, so the opportunity is certainly there.
1: Killer. Well, man, what's one piece of encouragement you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with as we as we end the conversation?
0: Ah, oh, encouragement. You know, I've, so many people have said so many encouraging things to me. I think you uh, know, I really believe that you know, some of those you know obvious but but trite things are, are true. You know, it's a little bit like, mm. um, you know, the older I get, the, the wiser my dad becomes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's but, why he said that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think there's a, you know, like you know, the, the believe in yourself, like don't give up on yourself uh, no matter what, like that one uh, I heard a lot as a kid. Uh, and now I feel it's maybe the most important thing. You can really, wow. you can really choose your own destiny. And if you believe in yourself, you can, you can make things happen. Um, yeah. no, nothing can stop that.
1: It's perfect. Applicable to everybody. Monica, I appreciate you being here, man. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having it with me. I know this has been valuable to me and our audience. I really appreciate you.
0: Pleasure. Thanks so much, Drew. Great to be here. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and
1: hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.